Well, good morning, saints. It is good to be in the house of LCM with our family. My father and I have been entrusted with the awesome task of presenting this amazing body with the word of God today. We never take these tasks flippantly or lightly. It is an honor and has been the aim of my life personally since my birth. Growing up in the Stevens home, there was only one goal and one aim for my life. To correctly and rightly handle the word of God in all of its fullness. As 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. I remember fondly my father telling me, Son, if God had wanted you to be a physical therapist, he would have put you in someone else's home. Well, he was right. He went on to say, you are Stevens, and you were born of God to excite and confront people about the realities of the kingdom. Now, like most young men, and please take hope in this room, parents, I loved this idea, and I also had to fend off competing thoughts that Satan himself aimed at my heart to create rot in this great calling from within. Now, after a dramatic encounter with Jesus... The heavenly call and aim of our family was confirmed to me and in me personally. Saints, we're going to have a good time today. We're also going to strike at the heart of Satan's attempts to rot and corrupt the great call of God on your lives. Church, it is good to be with you this morning. Do you mind uh, if we read a verse from the Amplified? I've always found the the title to that Bible, somewhat audacious. The Bible How are you going to amplify truth itself, <laughs> light itself? But what they mean is for us poor Gentile crackers, they're going to help us figure out what the text is actually saying. So do you all mind if we do that? We love you guys very much, and we're proud of your growth in the kingdom. We also happen to know the battles that you're facing. And our aim is to win them all. Yeah. Amen. Do you want to win? Yeah. Yes. Then let's go to Hebrews 11. And we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to put the Amplified on the screen for you. Now faith is the assurance. I'm talking about the confirmation. Yeah. The title deed of the things we hope for. Being the proof of things we do not see and the conviction of their reality. Faith perceiving as real fact what is not revealed to the senses. I'm fully aware that when we read this passage, quite a few messages have been preached on this verse. I personally have preached whole messages centered on defining each word in Hebrews and done it down to the most subtle nuance that I could discern in those definitions. Yeah. This is not why we're opening with this verse today. We're opening with this verse because we all face a basic problem. And honestly, we tend to avoid it at all costs. Are you ready to face it this morning? Yeah. The problem is we believe what we see. 
<laughs> the problem is we focus on the present circumstance that is in front of our face. Brothers and sisters, that is often just unbelief masquerading as pragmatism. Faith, faith sees what is unseen with the naked eye. Come on. Faith perceives what is not yet, but soon will be. Unbelief can't look past the right now. Unbelief cannot see beyond the surface of what you're looking at in this moment. You see, church, our God is speaking in a resounding way about this concept. Could you hear in worship today about our king's desire for us to see his global vision? Yeah. Look, I want to affirm, point blank, right up front, we're going through this whole process with you. Yeah. Everything that we share today will not be from the perspective of an ivory tower, but rather in the trenches alongside you. No, let's, let's just tell him up front. <laughs> Judah was really sick yesterday. He's having some dental issues and those kind of things going on. I was exhausted from traveling through the night. Pastor Piro did all of the hard work, but I'm not as strong as he is. And then I finished it off by some carpentry projects and all kind of stuff. And somewhere around 8 o'clock, we were just sharing what God is doing in our hearts. Is it all right if we preach to you something that's not all that eloquent, but it is what the Lord is doing in our hearts? All right, well, that's what we're about to do, whether you want to do it or not. <laughs> and if you have the courage to stand up and walk out on us, I will have the courage to call your name out loud. So we're pretty well locked in for the full ride here. I know. We know that you have discovered things in the soil of your own heart that are disappointing. Ask me how I know that. I know that you have discovered deficient areas in your spouse's spiritual life that are discouraging. Ask me how I know that. <coughs> I know that the disciples that you are so diligently training have failed in ways that are disconcerting. Those are very real and understandable obstacles in your own journey. Look, I've been clinching with the feeling of disappointment, discouragement, or disconcerting feelings, because it feels nicer to say it that way, in regard to the things that I'm seeing on a daily basis. Look, all of this is abject faithlessness. Regardless of how else we'd like to put it, it is unbelief in me, manifesting in my work, Manifesting in my home, manifesting in my relationships with the men around me. It's really rot that strikes at the core of a calling. Saints, we want to address this today. Faith does not look at the present situation as fatal. Faith sees what will be. Faith doesn't examine the surface, but sees what God himself is cultivating. Real faith is not faith in yourself. Real faith is not faith in your spouse. Real faith is not faith in your children or your disciples. 
No, saints of the living God, real faith is in God who can make things grow. Engage with that for a minute because Judah dropped a bombshell on you. We love this idea of like, I've got such faith in you, sweetheart. Well, if you do, then the object of your faith is in the wrong place. Biblical faith is not faith in humanity. Even the sweet ones that you love. Or like in my case, the beautiful one that is shaped so attractively to me. It's not faith in the other person. The object of biblical faith is always God who can make any situation grow. Who can make any situation change. Saints, where is your faith? Come on. Look this, out. Sorry, you look how succinctly Paul puts this in 1 Corinthians 3, 7. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Oh, I know you've read that a hundred times, and you never thought about the fact that Paul is telling you the one doing the work, the object is not what you see. It's not anything, but only God who makes things grow. And he makes them grow. All right, so... This week, you love that in English? This week, you have no idea whether I mean W-E-A-K or W-E-E-K. Yes. Yes. <laughs> this week, this week is in seven days, and this week is in this week, human being. Has been wonderful. Wonderful. And awful. In the aging and decrepit Stevens household, we are having our own battles. And yet we are standing in the midst of our dreams that are now reality. Look around. God conceived this. God birthed this. Unlike Mr. Colgate's book, I really am living my best life right now. And yet, standing in that field of dreams, we're facing uncertainty about so many things. Come on. Uncertainty. Wow. That's a pretty little word, isn't it? Yeah. Uncertainty is something that everybody can relate to, can't you? Come on now. Can you relate to not knowing how things are going to work out? So let's work through some conversation in the old fossils household. How is that going to work out, honey? I don't know, honey. What do you think is going to happen with X, Y, and Z, honey? I really don't know, honey. When do you think we're going to be able to do this or that, honey? I'm not sure, sweetheart. <laughs> of course, uncertainty is just a sanitized word for unbelief and faithlessness. It's the subtle fear that it won't work out, yep. isn't going to happen, or you won't be able to do it. And it's just seeping through our speech in polite terms. So that the Stevens don't have to face our fear and unbelief. Well, I'll say this. 
Satan is busy. And he's subtle. He will rot the core of your faith and do it in a way you don't even realize it's happening. But as for me and my household, we're going to win. Amen. We're going to be patient. We're going to wait for the Lord to show us. We're going to take our stand on the reality that we perceive by the word and the witness of God. Come on. He's given us every reason to trust him. In fact, his track record in our lives is indisputable. The Stevens have been repenting over worry about uncertainty. We're taking our stand in the middle of the field that Adonai has made grow, is making grow, and will make grow. Anybody want to take your stand with us? Come on. Look, so honestly, this morning, we know that you have probably had your fill of agricultural messages. <laughs> Ask us how we know. We get it. You are a group of intelligent, smart people, and you understand the analogy. You have the concept down. You can probably share all of the basic principles more articulately than we do. Yeah. But the thing is, you have the very... The thing is... You see, you have very little actual agricultural experience. And the Bible is an agricultural book written to people whose lives depended on the agricultural cycles. So we're going to plow this field a little longer, so to speak. Whoa, a little longer. We're going to plant this seed with perseverance. And we're going to water what you do currently have and possess. We're going to see a continuous cycle of harvest in every species of food that we should have as the people of God. Let's begin our little adventure by watering some of the seed you already do have. Amen? We know, if we could have that slide sound booth there, thank you so much. We know that our weakness is necessary to bring forth the wheat harvest through God's power, don't we? Weakness helps produce wheat, and you know that it's by God's power. Oh, come on. We know that your spiritual poverty is necessary to bring forth the barley harvest through God's supernatural abundance and multiplication. Now, don't you tune us out because you know these things, but you do not yada these things yet. We know that crushing moments are necessary to bring forth the grape harvest of joy and light. That can only be given by Adonai alone. Oh, we know that every circumcising moment today results in a fig harvest of fruitfulness tomorrow. Man, are we growing in our awareness. This assures us that God himself did it. Even while we are aware that we in and of ourselves couldn't do it alone. We know that every time. You're broken open like a pomegranate. Oh. It's an opportunity to see the state of the commands within you. Adonai loves us 
And he's faithful to show us where we need to get to work. We know that each pressing moment is to bring forth the olive harvest in your life. And this is how God makes it plain to everybody around that we are filled with all-surpassing power and yet are still jars of clay. We know that our most fruitful ripening occurs in obscurity, just like date honey. (laughs) And it only serves to make Adonai's word sweet to us. That's the purpose of the obscurity. It's like God and you are just getting alone a little bit because he's not going to let you be prominent in any way. And you don't want to, except you do. (laughs) We were all blessed by Adam and Justin's message. Hands off my fruit. (laughs) The Lord made it clear to us through them that the outcome is not in question. They quoted to us Leviticus 25, 19. Then the land will yield its fruit. Come on. And you will eat your fill and live there in safety. This process we are going through is not uncertain. Certain. It's not discouraging. Come on. It's not disconcerting. It's not disappointing. It is God's method of developing us. Oh, come on. Was anybody strengthened in this house by realizing the harvest will come? It's a certainty. Those brothers, man, they helped us to understand that the fruit in the field that we are standing in, oh, man, it must be defended because it is God's promised fruit. Saints, we will not give up on one lentil. Man, I'm learning to fight for beans because of these brothers. One lentil that God has caused to grow in us collectively. I mean, after all, 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, we are God's field. Saints, this means that we join with you and you join with us to fight for the outcome that God himself says will happen. After all, you might need the fruit growing in my field to survive. I know for certain that I will need the fruit growing in your field to survive. How many crops can one man grow? You need a diversity. You need a multitude. I'm going to eat okra today, tomorrow, the next day. 360. How many years can you just eat the one crop you're growing? <laughs> no, the reality is your food is growing in your brother's field. And his food is growing in your field. My working theory is that Shama intended to trade the lentils for a steak later. Because no mighty man survives on lentils alone. Saints, when you look at this biblically, we are one field and we have one purpose. We are all God's harvest and aimed at producing Adonai's desires on the earth. The harvest that Adonai has forecasted And the outcome is not in question. It is a certainty by faith, and we must see it. Amen. Look, that was a little watering of the seed that you've already received. Would you like to engage with something you don't know? Are you sure? Well, the title to our message today 
is husbandry. Since that's a word that is rarely used, let us consult Merriam-Webster. Think we put, yes, we put it on a slide. The cultivation or production of plants or animals. The scientific control and management of a branch of farming and especially of domestic animals. The control or judicious use of resources. Archaic, the care of a household. Husbandry used to be the way that we referred to the cultivation of almost everything. Come on. This was true when speaking of garden plants or breeding animals. Before English descended into emojis and nonsensical terms like racial equity, how can two people with the exact same moral qualities before God, the exact same endued image of God, not have equity? That's an absurd concept. Or how about the term pro-choice? What does that mean? Who in the world doesn't want to have choices? Freedom is choices. But they want the choice to put this in a sentence, murder their baby. Nobody should have that choice, which is why the sentence is not complete. What a ridiculous, nonsensical term. Or how about this one? Gender fluidity. Well, that's disgusting. <laughs> it's, it's not real. It doesn't exist. It's the kind of, here's a Louisiana word, gradu, that somebody made up. Knowing that you will have no idea what it means and just keep moving in the conversation. We used to employ nomenclature that was specific. That was purposeful. And here's the all-important one that had a definite, non-movable meaning. <laughs> so long before my time, long before my father's time, back when words had meaning, the term husbandry referred to the way that a man took care of his household. See the little footnote there, archaic, like a warning sign that you shouldn't use it this way anymore? Although this fact is not known to many, its truth is still retained today in the term husband. Today, these immutable functions that were given to us by God himself are under attack at every single turn. Oh, but saints, in this house, somebody say in this house. In this house. In this house, we will stand in our purpose and God-ordained function. Saints, I really cannot contemplate these subjects that an irresistible urge yeah. to go to Genesis 2 and reflect on some old treasure that will prepare the way for new treasure that God wishes for you to receive today. Genesis 2, verse 8 and 9. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and Woo! good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Oh, saints, who made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground? 
Did the trees suck? What were they? They were pleasing to the eye. They were good for food. God caused them to grow. Now, if God made them grow and they were good, they were pleasing. How do you explain verse 15 as it comes? 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Contemplate this for a moment. God is the one who caused the trees to grow. And they were already good and already pleasing prior to verse 15. This begs the question, or rather it gives you a declarative statement. God does not need the man to make things grow. God does not need the man to make things good or pleasing. God is the only one who makes things grow. God put Adam in the garden to cultivate something within Adam, Ooh. not the garden. Pause on that for a second. Because you heard us. But we want you to understand us now, not three weeks from now. You believe that Adam was put in the garden so that Adam could cultivate the garden. God was already cultivating the garden. He already made it grow. In fact, Adam was not put on a plot of dirt with nothing in it no. to see how he would do. Adam was already put into something that was a raving success. So why was he put there? Because God knew that in the work, something would be cultivated inside of Adam. Saints, as you meditate on that in your daily life, I promise you, it will bless you, give you perspective, give you purpose. But you need to know, Adam was given a covenantal responsibility to the earth itself. He had to learn to cultivate certain aspects of his own nature in order to work the garden and take care of it. It was forming him. In return, the garden was working for Adam and taking care of Adam, providing the sustenance he needed. Oh, yeah, no, three of you got it. <laughs> when you are engaging in the work that God gave you, that work will begin to work in you to show you what still has to be cultivated in your life to be fruitful. God doesn't need you to accomplish anything. In fact, he could go, and suddenly an earth is there. He can do anything that he wants to do. He chose for us to engage in certain tasks that he has directed because those tasks till the soil of our heart. There is a relationship between the land that Adam is working and the land working Adam, and God is glorified through both. Anytime you use an archaic, in quotations, word, there's a danger that your modern society is just not going to quite click until you're 50 to 60% of the way through the message. So in, in intention to cure that before we get to 50% of the message, husbandry, you need to know it is a relational word. All you need to do is think about a righteous husband and wife, and it will help you understand God's mandate for husbandry on the earth. It conveys a deep and meaningful attachment to cultivating life between the man and what he's been entrusted with. This goes for the home. This goes for livestock, even down to the dachshund. 
and every bit of agriculture that was found in the garden. Husbandry is a deeply, personally interconnected relationship for the things that you care for. And while you are caring for them, something is also happening inside of you. You know, I'm told that a certain farmer had become rich. Must have been a long time ago because no farmers are rich now. Mm -hmm. And it was not necessary for his children to work the fields anymore. So a neighbor is standing at the fence talking with him, and the neighbor is chastising the farmer. And the reason that he's chastising the farmer is because he still sees his children working in the field every day from sun up till sundown. And there's no reason to do that. I mean, you are wealthy now. Why would you do that? The farmer's response to the neighbor was somewhat priceless. You want to hear it? Yeah. Hey, buddy, I'm not really growing corn over here. I'm growing tomorrow's men. Perhaps you should shut up, go to your own house with your daughters. Okay, so I made that up. That didn't, that didn't actually occur. But it would have been wonderful if it happened, didn't it? The reality is that you and I live in an Amazon Prime society. We click, and the things that we think we need show up in ours. <laughs> However, the Bible emphasizes the means by which character is cultivated. In fact, Adam's husbandry of the garden led to another way that God cultivates a man's character. Becoming a husband. <laughs> let's, let's look at the next verses. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now we're going to engage with this a bit. You all think, every one of you came in here believing that the significant test was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? That's what you came to in Sunday school class. It's what you heard preached on so many times. But a closer examination of the series of events might show you that Adam was successfully cultivating the garden, yeah. even with the presence of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. His failure came in the cultivation of his next responsibility, his wife. But that is a whole other message that we're not doing today. Now, I remember my father preaching about something called limp leadership yeah. and a flaccid marriage. Oh. Now, I myself were with some of my closest brothers driving in a van in the Middle East, you know, their mountains, deserts, trying as hard as possible to get a hot spot to work. And we were streaming it on YouTube while you were hearing this sermon. Now, from this sermon, we learned that a man must possess seven things prior to being married. You should recognize this slide. Seven things a man must possess. You must know your purpose. You must live in his presence. You must have faithfulness at your job, your J-O-B. Number four, you have to cultivate what has been entrusted, as in bringing out the best in every environment that God places you. You must bring protection against all physical or spiritual harm to what he has given you. Then six, you must possess 
the word that God himself spoke to you. Not know it, but possess it. And then seven, the culmination of each of these steps was you must possess the ability to teach the word of God. Man, did that transform anybody in this house? Anybody forgotten about parts of it in this house? We're reviving the things that Adonai has destined every man, whether married or now as a husband, certainly to have these things inside of you. The truth is that Adonai was using the garden to cultivate Adam into a man that could cultivate his wife. The man and the woman were then to cultivate the entire world together. And they would ensure that God's image was represented throughout the creation. Do you see how that works? His vocation, which, by the way, is Latin uh, in its etymology, and it means to call. <laughs> the calling, his vocation began with, with his work in the garden, cultivating it. And that cultivated something in him so that he could then cultivate her. So that together and only together could they fulfill the mandate on mankind, yeah. cultivating the earth. Yeah. Do you see the progression there? Husbandry started in the garden, then it moved to marriage, then to a family, but it is all cultivation. This means that only God makes things grow, and he delights in doing it. But the whole process is aimed actually at growing the man, growing the woman. Growing the family in Adonai's purposes. Can I share something with you, church? Are you sure? There are at least five definable areas that all men must learn, grow in, and master so that we practice husbandry and raise our families in the same vocation so that they can cultivate the earth. Let's put them on a slide for you. Let's talk dominion for a minute i guess i should read you all five dominion cultivation saviors and that word's plural for a reason sages glory bearers i think when you examine the older testament and the newer testament but you find them all in all places you'll find these areas of husbandry in the lives of the men that we are reading about Let's talk dominion for a second. This would be a familiar one for you, but you need to engage with it. Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill or replenish the earth and subdue it. Y'all know what that word is. What, what is the word for subdue? Kabosh. You got to put the kabosh on that thing. That's dominion. That is authority over something. That is conquest. That is warfare. And God spoke it to a man. Look, if you punish people for being aggressive, if you take wooden swords away from your boys, you will teach them to be effeminate. How about you teach them how to use the wooden sword? Come on. How about you teach them the right kind of conquest? If you punish your son, for defending his little sister. Say, hey, you should never fight. You have made a terrible mistake. Teach him where and when and how to fight. That our battles are spiritual primarily, 
but no man stands by and watches his little sister be physically abused. This is in the mandate of mankind. We put the kibosh on evil. Come on. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, you know this is the mandate of Adam, the mandate of mankind. What you need to get familiar with is that this can only be done as the man leads and the woman follows. Come on. It can only be done in submission to the Lord. Can you see how this is husbandry? He's taking care of what God has entrusted to him by going to war with what should not be there. Nothing is wrong with this calling. Sin has made it more difficult, but it's still divine. You cannot throw out conquest and dominion from our husbandry and, and still succeed. It must be there. The only thing wrong is that sin has made it so that not every conquest that we want to go on was derived from God. Not every area that we want to show dominion was born of God. So we must rely on him to show us where the conquest is, where the dominion is, and Adonai will help us do it. Yeah, so we kibosh earthly thoughts. We kibosh the idea that we don't already have everything we need. We kibosh the idea that we should be fearful because we don't know what is coming. We kibosh every evil thing that would try to enter our life. This includes sinful actions. It includes renegade behavior. It certainly includes discouragement and uncertainty. Luke 10, 19 literally says, I've given you all authority. Does that not sound like dominion? That's dominion over the earth. Matthew 28, 19, you think of it as the Great Commission, but engage with it. Go and make disciples of all nations. That sounds like conquest to me. A man who walks in dominion is aggressive. He is powerful. He is tenacious. But he is only those things relating to what God has actually said to him. Biblical dominion flows From trust-grounded obedience to the voice of the Father. Let's talk cultivation for a minute. Genesis 2.15, which we read earlier, says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Sound booth, if you could throw that slide back on the screen. As a man, you are called to work. Somebody say, work. You're called to it, and you're called to take care of the things you have dominion over. Your life is not conquest alone. It would be incomplete, immature, and infantile if it were. Conquest is making a baby. Cultivation is making the baby into a fully grown man. My God, that is, that's good. Let's put it in church terms for you sweet Christians. Conquest is wanting to see somebody saved on a street corner. Of course, cultivation is walking them in the journey of salvation, teaching them how to do it. In the same way that we have illegitimate fathers producing illegitimate children everywhere, 
We have a conquest kind of evangelism, yeah. and nothing's wrong with conquest, except that that is only one-fifth of what a man is. The cultivation must follow it, or else you'll just be a YouTube sensation and a legend in your own mind. <laughs> Saints, we live in a society that demonizes masculinity, that wants you to either be an effeminate eunuch at the beck and call of women, or to be a macho bravado man that has your chest out and has no idea how to cultivate or make life grow in anything. You're just a dumb animal. But our God speaks to us in his word about being something more than a one-sided individual, more than an animal. We are called to dominion and called to cultivation. A man who cultivates, man, you must first learn to cultivate your own prayer life and faith. Look, Luke 18.1 says, pray and do not give up. Jesus was teaching his disciples how to cultivate life in other disciples. But it had to start in their own prayer and faith that must be unyielding. And when a man does this well, when he faces his fears relating to uncertainty, when he faces his disappointment and his uncertainty relating to his present situation, his wife, his children, or his disciples. And then, then and only then, that man can cultivate as God desires because he knows the outcome by faith. Husband, when you look at your wife and you're like, I've already told you that. I don't know why we're talking about it again. Yes, you great conquistador. You conquered this issue once. And you thought you would never have to cultivate it again? We are in dominion. Oh, but on. we are also cultivators. You cannot have one without the other. When Jesus said, pray and do not give up. He didn't say, pray and answer the issue once. See, to cultivate it takes a supernatural kind of patience that is only born through prayer and faith. But when we learn to cultivate faith in the face of discouraging, disappointing, disconcerting moments, man, the outcome that God desires will happen. The way that Galatians 6.9 puts this is that you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. Not if you do what is right once, but if you do what is right continually. Now, all of you are in perfect shalom. Your homes don't have the kind of problems that mine does. But occasionally, and it is genuinely a fairly rare occasion, my, my wife will be impatient with my daughter. And I'm like, what are you doing? She's an amazing girl. She just didn't understand. Why would you say that? And then I look in the mirror of the word and go, oh, it's because I'm impatient with you, Jennifer. That is why that is happening. So while it seems like we're preaching to men right now, I want you to understand that the way that all of this flows is it starts with the husband and the wife Come is a on. reflection and the children reflect the wife. That's the way this works. Oh, it's probably best that you get into saviors now. Oh, my goodness. Saviors. Let's talk Genesis 3.14 for a minute. Now, I know, like all of the other passages, when we turn here, you're like, uh-huh, uh, the, the mother prophecy, I got it. Man, this is, this is where Jesus, Jesus enters the word. We got it, Messiah. Now, would I be standing up here telling you something that you already know and confidently affirm for no reason? No. 
Okay. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you've gone and done it now. <laughs> Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. I know that the common association with this because of what Paul said in Galatians is, this is Jesus, this is Jesus, this is Jesus. Of course, that's not what Adam and Eve thought. I'm not saying it's not Jesus. Of course it is. I've preached on this passage more than all of you. But that is not how they heard it. They heard more than a singular Savior. It could only be accomplished through the one seed who would come. But what they heard is that their children would be dragon slayers. Come on. Their children are going to crush the head of the thing that is biting mankind. So you then are called to be a dragon slayer. All of the women's offspring were at war with the serpent. Not just one of them. All of them. Only one of them ultimately succeeds in completing that task perfectly. But the whole point of that is that you be like him and do exactly what he's done. Come on. Not only do we conquest. Can we put that slide back up? Not only do we conquest, but we also cultivate the things that we were given dominion over and then we become the saviors in every bad situation of the things that we are caring for in fact all of a man's actions ought to be aimed at saving not destroying come on that's why paul said i've been given authority to build you up and not tear you down the whole point of anything that we do is that we are saviors Reflecting the Savior. The great mistake of our century is relegating this work to Jesus alone. The work is done through Jesus alone, but it is definitely your calling to be saviors by being dragon slayers. You know this from Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan, that ancient dragon, that serpent, under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Adonai is the only one who has saving power, but he saves the world through you as the body of Messiah and ambassadors of salvation. We must be saviors in every situation. Destroying what does not belong and cultivating what God says must exist. A man that is a savior will look for what saves every situation. In fact, the Greek word that is used to describe elders in two of three lists says he looks for what saves every situation in the complete word study. Speaking of elders, let's talk sages. Joshua 1.8 is where we are going to begin. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you might be prosperous. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Saints, we are called to dominion. 
dominion over the creation, dominion over the work of God. We are called to cultivation, to bring life out of what was entrusted. We are called to be saviors in every situation, no matter the sacrifice. But an area that must not be neglected is that we are called to be sages. We are called to develop in every area, growing in our wisdom and understanding in every area God has set our hands to, we must know more about. It is the word that causes success. It is the word that causes victory. It is out of the wisdom that springs forth from the living and active sword that we teach others how to win and their fight. We must develop in our personal dominion in this house, in our patient work of cultivation, in our sacrificial fight for salvation, and in the depth of wisdom that comes only from applying God's word in every season and through many, many seasons. Seasons? Make sages. Look, in the quest for holy masculinity, in the quest to figure out what it is to be the man God has called you to be, it's so easy to lean on one of these facets or another. Yep. Well, I've always felt a little bit wimpy. I've never been very coordinated. I don't like to touch tools. And for whatever reason, I never entered an athletic field. So I'm going to retreat to study and study alone. That's not manly. That's one-fifth of what it is to be a man. Well, I'm the captain of the football team, and I love the way the crowd cheers, and these are my exploits. So I'm going to neglect my intellectual development. That is not manly. It's one-fifth of what a man is. We have to put these together in an all-encompassing way, and God will help us do it. Seasons in your life turn you into a sage. Can we put that slide back up for just a second? I'm going to talk to you about glory bearers for yeah. a minute. I'm going to quote to you, and you can trust me that I'm not lying. 1 Corinthians 11.7 says this very plainly. A man ought not to cover his head. Since he is the image and glory of God. Come on. But, somebody say but. But. But negate something and it joins something. It implies a connection with a difference. The woman is the glory of man. It doesn't matter how unpopular this is in our time. The Bible says it. And that really settles it. Sin has frustrated our view of this. Yep. But nothing is wrong with God's design. He did a better job than the Fruit Loops are doing with it right now. Just look outside. Amen. So much like the original call of man to dominion is frustrated by the presence of sin, but the calling is divine and still in place, the call of a man to be a glory bearer is frustrated by sin but the divine call is still in place. Come on. The man is the image and the glory of God, period. End of statement. The woman is the glory of man, period. End of statement. When a man begins to act like God, meaning that he loves what God loves, Come on. and he hates what God hates, 
then the image begins to rise to the surface so that others can see what God already says he is. Uncertainty, despair, discouragement, disappointment. These things do not change the fact. Somebody say fact. Fact. That God made a man in his image. You're in his image whether you like it or not. You're in his image whether you're doing a good job or not. It's just that acting like God makes that image clearer to the world around you. Oh, come on. This is going to help some of you men out. I've been hearing, and I can see in your eyes, you believe you're struggling with discouragement. The reality is you're struggling with a lack of faith. Stand up with me for a second. Get out of your seat, men. Wives, you can stay right where you're at. Somebody say, I am the glory of God. If you learn to stand up in what God has already said about you, you can achieve all five of these. The reason the fifth one exists is because it's God's declarative statement about your condition. Learn to believe what his word says above what you feel. Wives in your seats, say, I'm my husband's glory. Man, you better show them what kind of glory to reflect because God himself stamped his image on you. You ought never have a confidence problem again. You can sit back down. You can sit back down on the outside, but you better be standing up on the inside. I learned a long time ago not to tolerate less than an enthusiastic, exuberant expectation of the word. The word, even if Judah and I are not doing a good job, and that happens sometimes, we're still growing ourselves. The word of God demands your full attention. Yeah. It demands 100% of your focus. Come on. So whatever you're doing after the service, whatever's going on in the other room, or whatever keeps popping up on phones in this room, send it to hell for a little while and focus on the kingdom of God. And we've already told you that today our title is Husbandry. Husbandry. While you're beginning to think about this, engage with it. You're realizing what the five areas are. We want to help you engage with it in agricultural husbandry. On the subject of dominion, you are to take ownership of the field that God has given you. You are never, never to hesitate to uproot, to tear down, to build and to plant in the field that God gave you. You were given dominion over your field, and it is yours to rule over. On That's the my field! Yes. On the subject of cultivation, you're patient, careful, and hardworking to ensure that your crops are doing well. That's the purpose of the field, and you have to cultivate it. You know that what you are doing is making room for God to cause it to grow as you trust him. On the subject of saviors, man, if you see a predator in the field, something's eating your crop, you risk your life to save that crop because you have been cultivating it. Have any of you ever wondered whether you had the authority to step on a roach? Of course not. It's a roach and you're a man. When something is threatening your Come on. husbandry, step on it. You quite literally result to chemical warfare if there are things that are attacking your crop. 
whether it's sprayed on the ground, rain down on the sky, you do whatever it takes to kill what is wanting to touch your fruits. On the subject of sages, someone engaged in horticultural husbandry accumulates wisdom on acquiring land rights, where the best land is. They accumulate wisdom on proper growing techniques, proper techniques to save a struggling or weakened crop. Becomes an expert on nutrient levels. Becomes an expert on humidity ranges, weather patterns, harvesting times, and harvesting methods. Saints, sages are made through many seasons and deliberate effort to grow. You do not become a sage without studying the work of your life over many, many years. But you can tell when a man has studied these things. On the subject of glory bearers, every hardworking farmer proudly displays what God has made grow. Oh, come on, those of you that have had a garden, you cannot wait to sow somebody your spaghetti squash. The rest of us couldn't care less. But to you, to you, it is the glory of what God caused to grow. Man, pictures of their produce on farms usually is the first thing that's displayed. Like they have an image of the best crop that they've ever seen grow. And they want you to see, hey, this is the glory of the farm and what it has produced. Since husbandry can be husbandry in an agricultural or horticultural sense. But husbandry is also in the realm of livestock and animals. We, we debated whether we could write the word animal husbandry and anybody would, would understand or think negative thoughts about that. that. technically precise. Because this message is listened to even on the left coast. Um, <laughs> we want to talk to you. Judah related it to the agricultural husbandry. I want to run through these quickly as we think of uh, husbandry from a livestock perspective. And of course, we're actually aiming the entire time of husbandry of your home. On the subject of dominion, you take ownership of your animals. You never hesitate to brand them. Fence them in within an area that you want them to be. Or to choose the breeding pairings to produce the next generation. You were given dominion over your animals. They're yours, and you know that from the field of husbandry. On the subject of cultivation, every owner of livestock knows the standards for their breed of animals. Yeah. Like I know a dachshund, a miniature dachshund, should be less than 12 pounds. And 17 is a little fluffy. <laughs> yeah, so they start with healthy, strong males. And they start with healthy, fertile females that are according to the breed standard. The animal husbandry works to produce the best offspring that that breed can produce. They use vitamins in their feed. Come on. They choose what will benefit the animal so that it grows strong and healthy. Their whole lives are about the cultivation of the livestock God has put under their care. On the subject of saviors. Everyone in livestock husbandry defends their animals against predators. Even if they're rustlers. Yep. Even if it's sickness that you're defending against. Or diseases. 
They do everything they can to save every animal in every situation. On the subject of sages, talk with somebody who breeds dogs for a living or raises cattle, sheep, or goats. They'll likely tell you more about the seasons those animals go through than you really wanted to hear. Sages are made through many seasons and cycles of these experiences, and we are to become sages. On the subject of glory bearers, most livestock ranches in Texas feature their prized animals' images on the very gate that is the entrance to their property. I bought a dachshund some years ago, and on one side there was acreage with quarter horses. On the other side, there was less acreage, but it was all dachshunds. It was the weirdest thing to see little hot dogs running around in the field. And when we pulled into the gate, kind of wondering where we were, and it was in Anahuac, by the way, I looked up, and in the wrought iron gate, it said, this is the home of Atlas. And there was a wiener dog that was obviously male because the cutout clearly showed that he was male. The glory of the Dachshund Ranch was the image of Atlas. Saints, God has called us to husbandry. Every area from dominion to the glory that you should be delighting in and God delighting in. It is a covenantal relationship that was meant to produce something in us. Just like Adam in the garden. And something in the world around us as it radiates from your home. These five areas are all needed in equal proportion. Amen. Equal proportion in the lives of every believer in this room. So as we interact with this for a minute, which of the five would you like to leave out? Which of the five do you think is expendable? Yet every single day, men walk around and they raise sons who barely know how to do one or two of the five because they never learned to hold all five themselves. That happens when you do what you're good at and avoid the areas that reveal your weakness. Saints, we want to talk to you about an area of husbandry that might be one of the least understood but is also one of the most highly acclaimed in the Bible itself. Some of the facts that we are about to share with you are simply because we find them interesting. Yeah, when you preach, you can talk about whatever you want to talk about. But we're preaching about something that we enjoy. Are y'all still with us? Yes. Okay, we're, we're going to eventually move to a close. But until then, I'm going to demand 100% of your attention. <laughs> I'll read it. Oak trees can be 150 feet tall. Consider that when you're thinking about the height of a building. Oak trees are thought to be the oldest trees on the planet. They protect their acorns with a coating of tannic acid on a hard exterior shell. It's tough stuff. Three, oak trees often live 1,000 years and there is one in Mandeville, Louisiana, that is 1,500 years old. But that's not the best part. They reproduce for over 700 years. An oak tree produces about 10 million acorns during its lifetime. 
Man, that's a lot of reproduction. They are the main source of food for many kinds of birds, deer, bears, pigs, and other mammals consume acorns. There are over 600 different kinds of oak trees. For reasons that science can't explain, truffles will not grow unless oak trees are present. There's a relationship. Only one in 10,000 acorns actually becomes an oak tree. Eight, most of the new lands discovered, like America, were in boats that were made from oak trees, seaworthy vessels. <laughs> Many of our favorite beverages derive a large portion of their flavor from the oak tree. In fact, I was drinking one last night. Thank you, Bosch, for introducing us to that. The Bible, the Bible itself utilizes oak trees as a metaphor for what Adonai is producing in believing mankind. So, admittedly, the nation of Israel may have no connection to truffles or fine whiskey aged in oak barrels. They made grain alcohols, but they probably didn't use oak barrels. That was a later improvement. They did, however, know how to cultivate oak trees. And they were experts in the husbandry of oak trees. As a biblically literate people, they knew that in Genesis 35, the patriarchs cleansed themselves of idols and memorialized the event next to an oak tree that is continually referred to in the scripture. They knew that in Joshua 24, an oak tree acted as an eternal witness to the, to the decision that the people of Israel made in Joshua's time to serve the Lord. The oak tree is called the witness of that. They knew that in Judges 6, the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon under an oak tree. And that's, that was not an insignificant fact. So the oak tree, it represents a cleansing from idolatry, an eternal witness, and the very appearance of the presence of God. We want to tell you that oak trees teach us about immortality. Oak trees begin... Like so many other trees or plants where an acorn dies in the ground. But then when it is raised, it has a minimum life expectancy of a thousand year reign, much like a millennial reign. And it's almost as if a master arborist tends to it, it seems to live even beyond a thousand year reign. The 1500 year old one in Mandeville, Louisiana, for those of you that have never been to that third world country, has seven branches. And the plantation that it's on is named for those seven branches. And it's 1,500 years old. Now, when you're thinking about crops, you know, you can raise lots of things. You could raise wheat. You could raise corn with all varying lengths of growth patterns. Oak trees are the epitome, though, because it is a generational crop by definition. One man cannot ever cultivate an oak tree to its full potential. It is a trade. It is a husbandry that must pass from father to son, from father to son, from father to son, for an oak tree to reach its full potential. Oak trees represent an immovable, eternal testimony. And you will see why they are considered immovable and eternal as we continue. So you know where we're going. We're going to Isaiah 61. Amen. We're going to read verse 3. And you're going to pretend you hadn't heard it a thousand times. 
and provide for those who grieve in Zion. Like those that are worried about uncertainty, those that are discouraged, disconcerted, disappointed, not because they don't believe God is working, but because say, it's not fast enough, they're too big of a failure, blah, 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 and more blah. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Come on. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. And a garment of praise instead of a, a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness. With more than 600 species, this is a unique species that horticulturists still have not identified, but pastors have. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord. Why? For the display of His splendor. An oak tree is a symbol of the Lord's own husbandry in your life. Come on. Of Him doing what you will be doing. Of Him demonstrating what you are to put into practice. Come on. When you receive the Lord's dominion in your life, when you receive his cultivation in your life, <laughs> when you receive his savior in your life, when you receive his wisdom in your life, Come on. then you become his glory bearer, a display of his splendor. Of course, Jesus set the example for this in every way. We won't go through them. You can write them down. That fact is not in dispute. Ephesians 1.21 says that he is having dominion above all things. And then goes on to say, you are his body. You are the wife that reflects him. John 15 describes his perfectly cultivated vine. And you bring life and fruit through him, like a wife that reflects her husband. Matthew 5 describes Jesus as the saving light of the world. And then goes on to describe you as light-bearing saviors to the world. 1 Corinthians 1.24 describes Jesus as the wisdom of God, like the ultimate sage. And then goes on to explain that his wisdom is displayed through you to the world. Colossians 1 describes Jesus as the very image of God. And then you as his body that bear the glory and image before all creation. Yeah, come on. Somebody say, I'm an oak. We are learning to reflect in our husbandry, the Almighty's husbandry. He has made and is making us into oaks, and we will do the same. Church, what the Lord has been doing for you and in you, it is not a testimony that should be easily set aside, not even in a weak moment. Saints, you are literally standing in a field that He, that God Himself has caused to grow. And it is your job to defend that testimony of what he has made grow by his power. And his growth will continue for all future. Hey, I'd like to run through how you do that. So let's put those five attributes of husbandry back on the screen. Look, taking dominion over every earthly thought. Having the attitude, this world was given to you by God. And you will not allow things that don't belong in it is a key to husbandry. Knowing that you must cultivate everyone under your care. Having the attitude that you were given this honor 
and this privilege and this responsibility to bring forth life in those around you, and it's not a burden, that is a part of husbandry. Knowing that you must be a savior, looking for the word that will save the situation and deliver others in every situation, and that is your calling. That is husbandry. Knowing that you must develop the wisdom of a sage and that you're ordained of God to instruct others, that is husbandry. Knowing that you are called to carry his image as a glory bearer, that is husbandry. This is what it looks like to be an oak of righteousness. And it takes it out of the realm of mere metaphor and brings it into practical terms that you can implement today. Can we tell you something about an oak tree? Yeah. Oh, no, come wait, on. wait, wait. My God, did y'all regress and become Episcopalians between our amazing Thursday service and now? No, are y'all ambassadors of God that want to carry the call right? So an oak tree, an oak tree, just like you, just like you, can take a little heat now and then. We have a slide for you. You guys see that image on the left? As long as fires are not intense infernos, most oaks will survive them. Oaks have very thick bark that is resistant to heat and safeguards the vital cambium cell layer that girdles a tree right under the bark. Evidence suggests that fire scars may even help protect the trees from invasive fungus. Shut up. How? No, speak up. Y'all are doing good. <laughs> How is that possible? How? Some oaks develop tylosis. These are fast-growing cells that effectively block off the damaged parts and isolate them. And even if all the leaves are burned off in a spring fire, oaks can totally regrow the leaves by summer's end. Occasionally, a tree is burned completely to the ground. But with the extensive root system still intact, the next year multiple shoots emerge like a flock of woody phoenixes rising from the ashes. Now, we didn't write that. That was, that was in an article by Bay Nature on husbandry. Church, what the Lord has been doing for you, what the Lord has been doing in you, is a testimony that should not be easily set aside even in a fiery moment. You've been in the heat of things before, and you are literally still standing in a field that he has caused to grow. And it's your job to defend that testimony of what he has grown, what he is growing, and with confidence what he will grow in the future. Come on. By faith, we perceive the outcome in advance, and it is not in question. So uncertainty, discouragement, and disappointment... They have no place in our lives, Hallelujah. and we're going to put the kibosh on those things. We see beyond what is, is now, and straight into the what will be. Amen. So my kid is bad. No, you found an area to cultivate your kid, and he's going to be a righteous soldier of Jesus Christ. <laughs> we're going to rise up out of those ashes. We're going to take hold of our crown of beauty. You are called to display the splendor of the Lord. You are the work of his husbandry. 
Saints, we told you that oak trees teach us about immortality. Oak trees actually go stronger as they get older. Each cycle of drought, each cycle of fire, each cycle of death is producing something that is more and more powerful than it used to be. See, we live in a decaying society. We think about growing older as growing weaker, as growing more useless. That's because we don't have a society of sages. But the oak tree tells you, it shows you how God causes something to become more like him as the years go by. Now, we have uh, personally witnessed an oak tree. And just for clarity's sake, we did not actually take this photo. We were enthralled reading about it. But on a personal level, like with our own eyes, how are you doing today, John and Joy? We watched an oak tree with multiple cars wrapped around it that impacted together with a force that created a sound like a bomb, where a car is going 70 miles an hour, misses the turn, and plows right into an oak tree that happened to be between our fantastic elder John and his lovely wife's room, saving them in that very moment. Amen. The extraordinary thing is despite the fact that three times a car kept missing the turn and slamming into the oak tree, and that the engine itself was wrapped around the oak, didn't even touch the bark on the oak tree. The bark was still intact. Did you think that hurt? <laughs> the oak tree said, man, I've had bigger scratches on my eyeballs. You need to develop some oak-like attitude. Come on. So when the Bible says that you're oaks of righteousness, it does not mean that you don't go through fires. It means that you've died many times and now you cannot be burned up. And I remember when Andrew Tisdale's life was a pile of ashes devastated by fire. But look at that man of God Oh yeah, now. look at him! He's in an oak tree that is raising up oak trees in this house. I remember when Nolan and Tara's lives were burned to the ground by the fires of hell and hellish behavior. But look at the Hewitts now! They're oak trees and their little acorns are coming at a frightening pace and they're going to grow into oak trees themselves. I remember when the Powells, I met them. They were a smoldering and they were smoldering in lukewarm and complacent Christianity. But look at Tom and Martha right look now. Look at them. They're glorious. That's a special kind of oak tree. That's what we call a southern live oak. Look oh, how yeah. You see how close they're sitting together right Woo! now? That's a southern lively oak. Cultivate it. Look, we obviously could do this all day long. I mean, I remember when Ray and Lindsay got here. Look at the oak trees they've become. And there, there are things coming right out of their roots in those little children. We can, we can go around the room with this. But I think what we want to do is transition to the only vulnerability that oak trees actually have. Would you like to hear that? The only real vulnerability to an oak tree is not what you might think. It is even true of oaks of righteousness. And this room is filled with oaks of righteousness. It is the satanic rot that strikes at the core of your calling and faith. In the field of husbandry, it is called an 
inclusion. The word itself gives you a hint as to its technical meaning. It has to do with something being included into the tree that does not belong in an oak tree. You guys see this next slide? See that section in the center there? It's called a bark inclusion, and it leads to rot. If you look at the outer edge, do you notice how everything looks fine? It's not until it's been cut that you can see what is happening on the inside. An inclusion begins in the smallest of areas. It begins in an area that did not grow or develop correctly. And what the tree begins to do as it recognizes that a spot didn't progress, it begins to try to wrap itself around this spot. Now, this can be due to an injury. It can be due to pressure on the tree, like a stone or a mountain. It also can be due to just flat-out retarded or stunted growth in an area of the tree's development. The mighty oak's tree's one weakness becomes apparent as the other healthy areas of the tree try to grow around this little injured spot. As the fruitful areas try to grow around the area that is just too weighed down to progress. As the fruitful areas try to grow around the stunted area. And as the name implies, the tree is usually successful. This tree had this inclusion begin many years ago. But over the course of time, through its fruitfulness and attempts to cover the spot that did not grow, it has managed to take this little spot and bring it all the way into the core of who it is, into the core of its strength. As we mentioned, as the name implies, and the tree is usually successful at covering over its own deficiencies, the inclusion then moves into the center of the tree and begins to decay from the inside out, striking at the core of the tree's mighty strength. The Lord's husbandry is the perfect example of dominion, of real cultivation, what it means to be a savior, what it looks like to become a sage through many seasons, and what it looks like to bear the glorious image of God. Saints, perhaps the hardships that you're enduring are actually aimed at getting you to examine the healthy areas of your life that are trying to grow over and conceal the unhealthy ones. This happens in our conversations where, you know, I, I say to one of you or one of you says to me, hey, hey, Eric, I'm not sure that that, that is right. And you're like, but look at all that is good because we feel personally torn down by that disappointing or disconcerting thing. That is the healthy bark on the oak tree trying to grow over something that ultimately will kill the tree. This is how oak trees die. Something has been included into their core that shouldn't be there. This happens every time that we engage with dominion because we're good at it and ignore cultivation because it's hard for us and takes time and patience. It incurs... It, it happens every time that we focus on being a sage. Like, I'm, I'm learning, I'm learning, I'm learning. Yes, but you haven't conquered anything. Okay? The way that this occurs in the life of a Christian are the five areas that we're talking about. And it's not because nothing good is going on. Oh. It's because we've neglected one of the five. And we're trying to make up for that area and hide the immaturity of that area by wrapping the other four 
around it. And the problem is the inclusion only grows deeper and stronger. There's actually only one cure for the oak of righteousness. And we learn this from the field of, of husbandry. Even the species of oaks of righteousness, there's one cure. When somebody sees an inclusion like this in an oak tree, they have to cut early and cut as deep as possible to get to it. And when they do cut early and deep, they don't just cut out what was decayed. They cut out actual good parts of the tree to get to what is decayed. They cut out more fruitfulness of the tree to get to the decaying part of the tree. And it usually looks like it's going to kill the tree. And at the moment that this gaping wound is there, literally, they have a mixture of anointing oil. I'm not making that up from the Bible. It's from the field of, of husbandry, horticultural husbandry. They spray a solution on it that are anointing oils. And then they stand back and wait because they know that only they'll say nature and we'll say God will make it grow again. But it actually ends up being far stronger than if this had never been done. The anointing oil on the deep incisions allow us to trust that God will make the area grow again. Amen. Look, we, uh, we had planned to read to you from Job 14 and not the section about can a tree grow again. No. That whole section is preceded by the statement, who can take something impure and make it pure? And Job says, no one. He was wrong. But he learned the right answer by looking at trees. We had planned to read to you from 1 John 3, 3 and tell you everyone who has hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We had hoped to teach you from the book of Revelation that we will produce crops that feed the nations. But I kind of think what we ought to do as the species of tree that we are is look right now for inclusions. Inclusions that maybe are not obvious to everyone around you because bark and healthy tissue has grown over it. And yet, you know, in the core of your being, there are things that don't belong and we have to cut early. What does it mean to cut early? It means to cut the moment that the Lord shows it to you. Yeah. And we have to cut deep. What does that mean? That means that we have to go way beyond the comfortable level of incision. We have to go way beyond just what is decayed and get down to even the parts that we think are probably still good. And then we have to ask God at this altar to give us this anointing oil and make us grow in those areas again because any one of these out of balance with the others will destroy you being a glory bearer. You're called to display his splendor. So we're going to begin to pray. Judah's going to lead us. You need to be in a time of examination. You are not hearing from us that you suck. You're hearing the opposite. You are an oak that is splendorous, an oak of righteousness. 
Your problem is not that you don't have what you need. Your problem is that there are things that you don't need growing beneath the surface of your bark. And others might not be able to see it. And when you look into a mirror, you might not see it. But they're revealed at the altar as we begin to examine our state in comparison with the husbandry of the Lord. Think through dominion. Are you actually showing dominion over everything that is earthly and warring against the reign of God in your life. Think through cultivation. Are you patient? Are you kind? Do you see it as a joy to cultivate those that are under your care? Because if any part of it is a burden to you, you've got an inclusion that will ruin the very core of what God has planted. Are you saviors in a situation? Or are you destroyers in a situation? Are you sages? Have you been content to show up, put your butt in a seat, and let someone else feed you? Or are you diligently working to develop the generational call of God on your life? Showing more devotion to the word than to a glowing idol hanging on your wall. See, that's an area... That in a church like ours, you could think you're doing okay. Because healthy things are happening in your life because others are a sage for you. But you're called to be a sage. Are you a glory bearer? Are you reflecting him? Husband, are you reflecting the groom, Jesus? Wife, are you reflecting your husband? This is an opportunity for us to live eternally with God, reproduce at an extraordinary level, leave an eternal witness and testimony on earth that will never die out. And we've already got it growing among us. This will just make it healthy. As for me in my house, as we pray and conclude, I'm going to be lifting before the almighty God the areas of cultivation that have not grown in me the way that they should. Here's what I mean. Dominion, the faith to act in a moment and conquer what God has spoken. Sagely wisdom, study about a subject, knowledge about it, that are good fruit, have grown over areas of my life that I don't have the patient faith to trust God to cause something to grow over years shows up in faithlessness and cowardice in me that is an inclusion, that is rot. When one great act of faith or knowledge about the subject doesn't fix it, and I'm left to trust God. So I'm going to ask the great arborist, the great husband, to cut my life open in these areas, to cut my household open in these areas, removing whatever is necessary to get all the way down to the root of the rot so that his anointing oil can come on to it. Saints, I want to warn you as we pray, the easiest thing to do is to identify it but stop short of removing all the rot because you need his anointing oil to go down to the core of who you are with nothing remaining. So ask him to hew it all out, to chisel it all out, and then to supernaturally enable it to grow as we stand together. Get on your feet with me. Father, I thank you for this family. 
Lord, we thank you for this body, Holy One. We thank you for the fruitfulness that does exist in our lives, that is your work. Lord, we're simply recognizing before your throne that you have called so much more from us. And we have picked and choose the areas that I have felt the most comfortable in. But you're demanding growth from the men of this house. But you're also promising that you will meet us when we expose it. That you will pour out your anointing oil on us and you will cause it to grow. So Father, we say cultivate us. Husband, create in us the clean heart that you desire. Cause us to grow according to your image. We believe your word and we want to be like you, mighty King.